This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Australia's second biggest trading partner, Japan. More than $70 billion worth of goods get shipped between the two countries every year. While the world's focus has been on the trade war between China and America, you might have missed the economic stalemate brewing between Japan and South Korea. And just a thousand kilometres behind me is Australia's fourth largest trading partner, South Korea. The Koreans trade just over $50 billion worth of goods with us each year. That's 6.6% of everything Australia exports. The problem is our second and fourth largest trading partners have got themselves into a trade war. Unlike most trade disputes, their war isn't about balance of trade or currency exchange. It's about history and colonialism. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on RN. Korea and Japan have a long history, going back for centuries. But the current dispute relates to the period between 1910 and the end of World War II, when Korea was colonised by Japan. So why do events that happened almost 80 years ago still matter? And what role has the United States played in this story? The Korean Peninsula was colonised by Japan in 1910, but even before that, Japan had its eye on Korea. The Western powers were carving up Asia, and Japan, the first Asian nation to modernise, began looking for its own imperial possessions. Greg Bozinski is Professor of History and International Affairs at George Washington University and the author of Nation Building in South Korea. You have this context in the late 19th century where the Western imperialist countries are seeking to expand their influence in Asia, and Japan is looking at the Western imperial powers, and it starts to seek to emulate them and create its own empire. In the early stages of the creation of modern Japan in the early 1870s, It wasn't so much Korea that was the target, but rather a sort of self-defensive notion of how to protect Japan from Western powers that were carving up the bulk of the planet. Alexis Dutton, Professor of History and author of Japan's Colonization of Korea, Discourse and Power. Really, it's from its beginning point of contact in the mid-19th century with the United States, Britain, Russia, France, that the early planners of Japanese statecraft understood that imperializing politics was the name of the game. They began with Hokkaido and then the Ryukyu Islands, commonly known as Okinawa, then Taiwan. Korea was more of a prize. It was not an island. It's a toehold on the Asian continent. something that also Russia was keenly interested in taking for itself. And so it's the 1905 victory over Russia, which turns Korea into a war spoil for Japan at the sanction of the United States. The whole city turned out to celebrate. A major Western power has been brought to its knees. Now we can move on to take our place as a first-class nation in the eyes of the world. The early stages of Japan's colonization of Korea rank among the most brutal of any colonial experience anywhere, and this would include King Leopold's Congo. And there were 
people who protested. There were armed resistance movements, but they were few and far between compared to the organized modern militaries of the Japanese at the time. So Korea quickly fell in a very violent way to complete Japanese control in 1910. Meanwhile, Koreans who wanted to protest Japanese rule realized that if they actually wanted to be Korean, they would have to do so by forming a government in exile, which they did in Shanghai. And then they would begin also in subsequent years until 1945 to form resistance movements throughout the world, but in particular in Manchuria as well as Shanghai. And that would create the origins of what we know today as South and North Korea. But meanwhile, back in what is now North and South Korea, the country of Korea, the colonization was total. Japan owned the banks. Japan owned the railways. Japan owned the electricity. They owned the education. They owned the military. So Koreans were still ethnically Korean, but they were defined as subjects of the Japanese empire. Japan's policy was quite flexible at the initial point. Ivan Telishev, professor at Niigata University of Management in Japan. On the one hand, they colonized, they annexed Korea. On the other hand, they wanted to integrate it into Japan, to make it actually part of the new rapidly developing Japan. That's why, along with imposing its rule, which was becoming increasingly dictatorial, Japan made a lot of effort to bring about Korea's modernization. It refers to industrialization, it refers to building infrastructure, it refers to building modern educational facilities, hospitals, so on and so forth. So this industrialization, modernization dimension is very important because Japan wanted to make Korea an integral part of its own. On the other hand, Independence or liberation movements were severely suppressed. Koreans and Japanese were not treated on an equal footing. As it came closer and closer to the World War II, and as the war preparations were underway, the assimilation trend amplified, and after all, all education in Korean language was banned. Koreans were forced to change their names to Japanese names. One of the interesting dynamics of the Japanese colonialism in Korea is that if you look at land ownership over the course of the 35 years in which Japan ruled over Korea as a colony, the percentage of land that was owned by Japanese landholders increased gradually over time. So it hit something like 50% by the end of the Japanese colonial period. So some historians divide the Japanese colonial period into different phases, with many saying that the period between 1910 and 1919 was one in which Japan really seeks to impose a new colonial order on Korea, and often it needed to use force to do so. The period between 1919 and 
say the early 1930s, is one in which there is some cultural and economic development and some limited amount of debate is permitted, but it's very limited. And then when you get to the Second Sino-Japanese War and you move into World War II, that's when the horrific nature of Japanese colonialism, the atrocities committed by Japan as part of its imperial rule over Korea reached their apex. At the time Japan entered World War II, Korea was effectively part of Japan. So Koreans have a mixed and complex experience with the war. Many Koreans were forced into slave labour and Korean women into brothels serving the Japanese army. Yet other Koreans volunteered to fight in the Japanese army. Many former British soldiers with whom I've spoken have very negative personal memories of Koreans in particular, largely because the POW camp guards that these soldiers lived under were of Korean ethnicity. And the Koreans tried to prove their loyalty to the emperor of Japan, for example, as prison camp guards by just beating and beating and beating. At the same time, that's not necessarily the majority number. And so this is where particularly South Korean history still has a lot of unpacking to do because you have hundreds of thousands of what are now considered people from South Korea, Koreans, who fought for the Imperial Japanese Army voluntarily. This includes people who have been president, dictators of South Korea, most particularly President Park Chung-hae from 1961 to 1979. And he had been a lieutenant in the Japanese Imperial Army who simply changed uniforms into one that accorded with the American occupation style. At the very same time, you have Korean independence fighters such as Kim Gu, who is considered a hero on both sides of North and South Korea because he tried with violence to overturn the Japanese rule. Then you have what Japanese historians even estimate almost a million people of Korean ethnicity forced into laboring, slave labor, labor for the war machine, but they were not given choice. They were not given any compensation. These are people who were forced into coal mines, steel mills, munitions factories to build weapons for the war machine. A lot of these Koreans who were forced to labor in Japanese factories and mines really suffered tremendously under Japanese colonialism. In fact, conditions in Japanese factories were so terrible for Koreans that there were something like 60,000 Koreans who died while laboring in Japanese factories. They were euphemistically called comfort women. Hundreds of thousands of Asians forced to work as prostitutes for the Japanese army in the Second World War. Japan has always denied claims the Imperial Army organized the racket. During the war, up to 200,000 mostly Korean girls were rounded up and forced to act as prostitutes for Japanese troops serving in their newly conquered Asian empire. As for the comfort women issue, substantial number of Korean women were treated as sex slaves and were forced to entertain Japanese soldiers. The Japanese government apologized to them, but it's not ready 
to accept full responsibility because those brothels were operated as commercial facilities and those comfort women were brought in by civilians. It was kind of business. The issue of comfort women is a really particular one because a lot of the system of the brothels that were set up all across the Japanese empire during during the occupied areas where Japanese troops were, was actually run and managed and organized by Koreans. Lecturer in international policy at Stanford University, Dan Snyder. Korean women were not the only women who were drawn into this system. In fact, early on, a lot of them were poor Japanese women, and there were certainly women from other places, Filipinos, Chinese, Dutch women, but the largest number were Koreans. So Korean men, in some sense, were participants in this system, and they weren't particularly interested in talking about this and having it explored after the war ended. You're with Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabelle Quince. We're tracing the historical relationship between Korea and Japan in the context of their souring relationship and trade war. On August 6th and 9th, 1945, a newly developed weapon of awesome power is dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japan's Seisen, its holy war, is over. When World War II eventually comes to an end and the Japanese Empire, in a sense, collapses, were Koreans involved in the peace talks at all? The South Korean government sought to participate in the San Francisco Conference of 1951, but the United States rejected this offer. So there was no treaty signed between South Korea and Japan at that time. Furthermore, at least according to Japan's way of thinking, there was actually no ground for signing such a treaty because, at least in Japan's view, South Korea Korea and Japan were not at war. One of the interesting aspects of this is that Korea suffered perhaps the most during the Japanese colonial period. And yet when it came to the war crimes tribunals, there was no Koreans who were allowed to serve as judges or to participate in them. Part of it is because Korea is still not considered a sovereign state immediately after the end of World War II. You have this period between 1945 and 1948 where South Korea is under U.S. occupation and Northern Korea is under Soviet occupation. The British had a better sense of history. The Americans were completely looking towards the future. They didn't actually seem to care what had happened during the war. They cared about positioning the United States in Asia and the world moving forward for the Cold War. And so the San Francisco Treaty, the terms of the treaty which still stand and are what really is undergirding all of the rancor today, it was signed in September 1951, went into effect April 1952. The treaty sort of puts on hold the question of compensation reparations that the Germans had to pay by way of comparison to sometime in the future. And that still hasn't happened. The United States was eager to have, particularly once the Korean War started, to have its two 
principal allies at that point, that is South Korea, the Republic of Korea and Japan, united into some larger security system in Northeast Asia, a kind of Northeast Asian version of NATO. The Koreans would have nothing to do with that. The same response was found from Australians and New Zealanders, for whom the memories of the war were still quite fresh, and there was no interest in joining a military pact with Japan. Even the question of normalizing relations between Japan and South Korea, which the United States was encouraging, and there were some meetings and discussions that took place from 1950 on, went nowhere. The reality was that Koreans and Japanese, the memories of the colonial rule and the war were far too fresh and bitter. And for the Japanese, there was a lot of trouble dealing with the issues of apology and compensation. Of all the questions coming out of the war, the one that's been most difficult for the Japanese has been Korea. You know, it wasn't until 1965 that South Korea and Japan, despite the fact that both of them are treaty allies, security treaty allies, the United States, actually established diplomatic relations and dealt with, for the first time, some of these questions about reparations and compensation, even then in a somewhat indirect way. On June 22, 1965, Korea and Japan agreed to begin a new chapter in their relations. The normalization of their diplomatic relations, a result of 14 years of lengthy negotiations, secured economic aid for Korea and post-war settlement for Japan. After 13 years of negotiations, the Americans finally decided that it was time for Japan to pony up and pay some money. And this had nothing to do, again, with the history of Korean suffering under Japanese occupation, but it had everything to do with the United States war budget, which wanted to transfer funds from propping up South Korea. The United States was 80% of the national budget and 100% of the defense budget of South Korea in 1964. And the United States wanted to transfer those funds for its new effort in Indochina to fight in Vietnam. And so Ambassador Reichauer made very clear in Japan that it was time for Japan to pay a certain amount of money. But what is absolutely essential to today's debate is that the 1965 treaty is abundantly clear. The money transferred from Japan to South Korea is not reparations. It's not compensation legally understood. It's essentially congratulations on your independence money. The Japanese government, to its credit, very much thought that individuals at the time should be included in this, very much wanted to have a treaty with that included what is today's North Korea, because, again, there was only one Korea under Japanese occupation. But the American government was absolutely against including Pyongyang. It also didn't care that the then dictator, former Imperial Japanese Army Lieutenant President He of South Korea didn't want individuals to be given any cash compensation or reparation money at all. And so he single-handedly directed the funds that were given from the government of Japan to the government of South Korea into his coffers so that he could target five different spots of what he viewed as the future of South Korea making it a very complex legacy. There are two narratives about the 1965 treaty. In the progressive narrative, the 1965 treaty 
is an awful, unequal treaty imposed in part by the United States. The South Korean government was the government of Park Chung-hee, of the military leadership that had taken power in a coup, basically, in 1961, and that their instruments, if you will, of the Cold War policies of the United States, which wanted this to happen, and they accepted a settlement that in no way dealt with the real compensation for individual victims in particular, including forced laborers and others of the Japanese empire. And the government that's in power today in Seoul, President Moon Jae-in, is a progressive government, and they absolutely embrace this idea that the 65 treaty is not a legitimate treaty. It wasn't done by Koreans themselves. The conservative narrative is quite different. Park Chung-hee and his principal collaborator at that time, a man by the name of J.P. Kim, were determined to pursue the modernization and industrialization of South Korea. Park Chung-hee wanted to reproduce the experience of Japan, and he looked to the Japanese not only as a model for how to industrialize, but as a source of technology and capital. And that's what he got out of the 1965 treaty. And I think most economic historians agree that the massive grants and loans which Japan provided under that treaty, the equivalent today of four, five, six billion dollars, maybe more, was the seed corn, if you will, for the industrial Korea that we see today, which is one of the leading modern industrial nations in the world. The Japanese built the Korean steel industry, Korean auto industry exists largely because of collaborations with Japan, shipbuilding chemicals, all of that came out of that partnership. So the conservative view is, no, this wasn't an unequal treaty. We just made the choice to take the money that Japan gave us and use it for this purpose rather than individually compensating victims, although there was some of that. So you have these two competing narratives, a version of history about what happened, and they don't agree with each other. Student unrest and international pressure in the late 1980s led to South Korea's first free parliamentary election in 1988 and the opening up of South Korean society. Through the 1980s, what you could say in South Korea was very limited. And I think South Koreans' autocratic regimes, they didn't want to be perceived as being very pro-Japan or as being subservient to Japan. But at the same time, because of the deep economic ties between South Korea and Japan, they also were wary of criticisms of Japan and Japan-South Korea cooperation that could also be used against the South Korean government. And because uh, during the 70s and 80s, there were such tight restrictions on freedom of the press and what you could say in South Korea, it was sometimes difficult not only to criticize Japan, but for some of these victims to speak up. So during the late 1980s and early 1990s, of course, South Korea does move slowly but surely towards greater and greater democracy, greater and greater freedom of speech, freedom of the press. And I think one of the byproducts of this was that Koreans become more willing to and more comfortable with talking about what had happened under Japanese colonialism and became more comfortable with 
criticizing different aspects of Japanese rule and demanding that some aspects of Japanese colonialism that hadn't been addressed get addressed. Throughout the 1990s, Japanese officials did offer a number of apologies for wartime atrocities, but it was never quite enough for Koreans. I regard these as irrefutable facts of history and express here once again my feelings of deep remorse and state my heartfelt apology. While going further than other leaders, Prime Minister Moriyama was speaking for himself and not apologising for the nation. The issue was brought to a head when three of the victims filed suit against the Japanese government, accusing it of complicity. And when a historian discovered documents that prove the army did organise the prostitution, Prime Minister Miyazawa finally made his apology. For those that suffered the hardship, I would like to offer my heartfelt apology and regret. Yes, there's a long track record of different Japanese politicians at the prime ministerial level, at the cabinet secretary level, addressing atrocities that have happened. The Murayama statement that you refer to in 1995 was the first of the major statements. Probably the benchmark is the 2010 Kan Naoto 100th anniversary of the annexation statement in which not only does he address past history, but he also asks Japanese to understand on a deeper level that Koreans really were injured by having their ethnicity stripped from them. And that's what makes what's going on, to me, less about Korea versus Japan, which is sort of easy to do in black and white terms, but more about Japan versus Japan, because there are deep divisions in Japanese society over how to address Japan's imperial era, Japan at war. And Korea, again, is maybe the fiercest example, because as you rightly began with, this is the closest neighbor, the deepest history. But this is but one place in the very large place that was the Japanese Empire. Skip forward to 2018. A South Korean court decided Koreans could sue Japanese companies for damages suffered during the wartime period. Companies like Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and Nippon Steel. Last fall, the South Korean court ruled in favour of three elderly plaintiffs and the court awarded roughly $80,000 in compensation, legally understood compensation, for suffering and reparations for wages not paid by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, one of the world's largest conglomerates. $80,000, again, is a weekend at a golf tournament for some of these people. So, you know, we're not talking about breaking the industry. And collectively... Japanese government and business said, no, 1965 settled all that. South Korean lawyers then moved to seize the assets of Japanese firms affected by the ruling. Japan responded by removing South Korea from its whitelist of most favoured trading nations, supposedly because of security concerns. South Korean citizens responded by refusing to buy Japanese goods and protesting. Thousands of South Koreans have protested outside the Japanese embassy in their capital, Seoul. They're angry that Japan has downgraded their country's trade status from preferred to just normal. Many of them carried banners saying boycott Japan and no Abe, referring to Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Japan claims that 
its decision to remove South Korea from the white list of most favored economic partners is related to security concerns. But I haven't seen any credible evidence of that. I think the timing of these decisions to start retaliating against South Korea economically is, of course, very suspicious because it comes right on the heels of these decisions by the South Korean courts. Japan today made clear it was going to keep saying that it was right, 1965 settled everything, and Koreans can't be trusted. So, again, this has nothing to do with economics and security. This has everything to do with differing positions over how to interpret the history of pre-1945 Japan and Korea relations, which unfortunately in of themselves have become security threats in an already volatile environment. Alexis Dudden, author of Japan's Colonization of Korea. My other guests, Greg Bizinski, author of Nation Building in South Korea. Ivan Telishev from Niigata University in Japan and Dan Snyder, lecturer in international policy at Stanford University. The sound engineer is John Jacobs. I'm Annabelle Quince. And this is Rear Vision on RN. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.